Section 20 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. Orlando de Lasso was born in the town of Mons, in Aino, probably in 1530. The Flemish form of the name, Roland de Lasso, seems to have been abandoned early in favour of the Italian. The fate of the musically gifted boy, both during and long after the Middle Ages, was a choir school, and accordingly Orlando was entered as chorister in the local church of St. Nicholas. A writer named Van Crickelberg, giving an account of Lasso in 1565, says that he quickly came to a good understanding of music, and that the beauty of his voice caused him to be twice stolen from the school in which he lived with the other choristers. Twice also his good parents rescued him, but finally, at the age of twelve, he became attached to the suite of Ferdinand of Gonzaga, viceroy of Sicily, with whom he travelled to Italy. Orlando stayed for some time in Naples, Rome and Milan, continuing his studies, and then seems to have undertaken a long journey through France and England. By the year 1555 he was settled in Antwerp, and rather widely known as a composer. Two years later, Albert V, Duke of Bavaria, called him to serve as chamber musician at his court in Munich. Duke Albert was a liberal man, a connoisseur of art, and oddly enough, a man of some fame both in the athletic and in the religious world. He founded the famous Royal Library of Munich, to which we have had frequent occasion to refer, and enriched it during his lifetime with many valuable manuscripts and objects of art. At first, Lasso, being unfamiliar with the German language, filled rather a subordinate position among the Duke's musicians, but in 1562 he was appointed master of the chapel, which included both the choir and an orchestra. From this year on, up to the time when the illness attacked him which resulted in his death, his career was one of ever-increasing success and prosperity. He was called the Prince of Musicians. In 1570 he was ennobled by the Emperor Maximilian II, and in the year following, Pope Gregory XIII decorated him with the Order of the Golden Spur. On visiting Paris, he was received with great favour by King Charles IX, while at home Duke Albert assured him his salary for life, and appointed three of his sons to honourable positions in the chapel. The successor of Albert, Duke Wilhelm II, not only confirmed Lasso in his position, but presented him, in appreciation of his services, with a house and garden, and also made suitable provision for his wife. Neither the favour of royalty, nor the admiration of princes, however, could render him immune to ill-fortune. His last few years were clouded by mental trouble and melancholia. In June 1594 he died, and was buried in the cemetery of the Franciscans. The monastery has been destroyed, but the monument to Lasso was preserved and now stands in the garden of the Academy of Fine Art in Munich. Although the name of Lasso is not well known to the world today as that of Palestrina, his career was a remarkable one. In the oft-mentioned Munich Library, among other works of the master, is a manuscript copy of his most famous work, the Penitential Psalms, written between 1562 and 1565, but not published until some time later. At the performance of these psalms, Duke Albert was so impressed and affected that he caused a manuscript copy to be made and placed in his library. 
it was richly ornamented by the court painter hans mielich and other artists and magnificently bound in leather duke albert was perhaps an exceptional patron but granting that to be the case lasso's career shows how honourable was the position held by a musician in his century in the duke's chapel were upward of ninety singers and players several of them composers of merit all of them musicians of ability the choir singing was well balanced and correct in pitch even through the longest compositions the general order of the ducal service was for the wind and brass instruments of the orchestra to accompany the mass on sundays and festival days and on the occasion of a banquet to play during the earlier courses of the dinner the strings under morari as conductor then enlivened the remainder of the feast until the dessert when lasso and his choir of picked voices would finish the entertainment with quartets trios or pieces for the full choir for chamber music all the instruments would combine the duke and his family were keenly interested in lasso's work passionately fond of music in itself and proud of the celebrity of their chapel master it is one of the instances where reverence and appreciation came to the artist during his lifetime and it is not to be doubted that these fortunate circumstances had a tremendous influence on the master's work his industry and fertility were prodigious compositions amounting to two thousand or more are accredited to him masses motets magnificats passion music frottole chansons and psalms there were two hundred and thirty madrigals alone following the lead of willet he sometimes used the divided choir and composed for it and also showed himself not indifferent to the growing taste of psalm singing the seven penitential psalms composed at the duke's request are for five voices some numbers with two separate movements for each verse the final movement sic erat for six voices each psalm is a composition of some length though modern ideas as to their tempi and therefore as to the time required for their performance show considerable variation it is not true that lasso composed the penitential psalms to soothe the remorse of charles the ninth after the massacre of st bartholomew but it is more than probable that they were sung before that unhappy monarch and his musical sense must indeed have been dull if he found no consolation and hope expressed in them this is no everyday music which may charm at all seasons or in all moods but there are times when we find ourselves forgetting the antique forms of expression passing the strange combination of sounds almost losing ourselves in a new-found grave delight till the last few moments of the psalm always of a more vigorous character gradually recall us as from a beautiful dream which waking we can scarce remember so unobtrusive is its character that we can fancy the worshippers hearing it by the hour passive rather than active listeners with no thought of the human mind that fashioned its form yet the art is there for there is no monotony in the sequence of the movements each variety that can be naturally obtained by changes of key contrasted effects of repose and activity or distribution of voices are here but these changes are so quietly and naturally introduced and the startling contrast now called dramatic so entirely avoided that the composer's part seems only to have been to deliver faithfully a divine message without attracting notice to himself de lasso's secular compositions are placed by critics almost unanimously even above his ecclesiastical work the madrigals and chansons reveal force and variety of treatment 
both experiments with chromatics, a freer modulation, and a keen sympathy for the popular elements of music. Lasso shed lustre on, and at the same time closed, the great epoch of the Belgian ascendancy, which during the space of two hundred years had given to the world nearly three hundred musicians of marvellous science. The decline and fall of the Netherlands school, which began with the death of its last great master, Lasso, are ascribed by Thetis to the political disturbances and wars of the sixteenth and succeeding centuries. But it seems more probable that these intricacies of the contrapuntal art created a desire for simpler methods. The genius of Italy and Germany, upon whose soil the last Netherlands masters flourished, supplied the very qualities which brought the art to perfection. It has already been related how, even as early as 1322, the liberties which careless, ignorant, or sacrilegious singers took with the Roman service had called forth denunciations from the papal chair. The genius of the Netherlands schools, dominating church music as it did for a space of 200 years, was, like Janus, two-faced. On the other hand, it developed a musical technique so complete and perfect in form that any further progress without an entire change of principle seemed impossible, and, on the other, it fostered a dry mathematical correctness that led, at its worst, to an utter disregard of expression and feeling. Only the genius of a Josquin or a Lasso rendered learning subservient to beauty of expression and carried out the true mission of art. In Rome, however, no master had yet appeared who was great enough to force into the background all the unsanctioned innovations by which unscrupulous musicians sought to reach the popular taste. From the time of the return of the popes from Avignon, 1377, Roman church music had been a continual source of dissatisfaction to the curia. As had been pointed out, the plain chant became more and more overladen with contrapuntal embellishments. The mass sometimes exhibited a laboured canon worked over a long, slow cantus firmus, the different voices singing different sets of words entirely unconnected with each other. Sometimes again the ritual was enlivened by texts beginning with the words Bezemoi, Adieu, mes amours, or the much-tortured homme armé, of which the tunes were as worldly as the text. If these objections were lacking, another was likely to be present in the absurdly elaborate style which rendered the words of so little importance that they might as well not have existed at all. The mass, bristling with inept and distracting artifices, had lost all relation to the service it was supposed to illustrate. It was usual for the most solemn phrases of the Kyrie, Gloria, Credo, or Agnus Dei to blend along the aisles of the Basilica with the unedifying refrains of the lewd chansons of Flanders and Provence. In this manner, the beautiful ritual was either degraded by pedants into a mere learned conundrum, or by idlers into a sacrilegious and profane exercise. And the reproofs of popes and councils had so far not availed to keep out these signs of deterioration, much less to lift church music to the level of the sister arts. In this situation, the Council of Trent was forced to recognise the degradation of music and to take up the question of a thorough and complete reform. In 1564, Pope Pius IV authorised a commission of eight cardinals to carry out the resolution of the Council, whose complaints were mainly upon the two points indicated above. First, the melodies of the Canti Fermi, 
were not only secular, but sung to secular words, while the other parts often sang something else. Secondly, the style had become so excessively florid as to obscure the words, even when suitable, and render them of no account. Some of the members of the council, it is claimed, declared that it was better to forbid polyphony altogether than to suffer the existing abuses to continue. In the passionate desire for the purification of the ritual, even Josquin's works had been abandoned, not because of any lack of admiration for them, but because he shared necessarily in the general condemnation of all music not Gregorian. A modest and devoted composer, however, had already attracted the attention of two of the members of the Pope's commission, Cardinals Borromeo and Vitellozzi, and it was to him they now turned in their need. Giovanni Pierluigi da Palestrina was born in 1526, of humble parentage in Preneste, or Palestrina, a town in the Campania four hours from Rome. Early in life he came to the imperial city, studied with one of the excellent masters resident there, and then returned to his native town to become organist in the cathedral. In 1547 he married the daughter of a tradesman, by whom he had several children. In 1551, Pope Julius III called him to Rome as choirmaster of the St. Julia Chapel at St. Peter's, where he succeeded Archidelt. Three years later, after the publication of a volume of masses dedicated to the Pope, Palestrina received an appointment as singer in the papal choir. He had a poor voice, he was a layman, and married. Each one of these reasons was sufficient, according to the constitution of the Roman college, to forbid his appointment, and Palestrina hesitated in his acceptance of the post. Not wishing, however, to offend his powerful patron, and naturally desirous of obtaining a permanent position, he resigned his office at the St. Julia Chapel, and entered the pontifical choir. This appointment was supposed to be for life, and the young singer may well have felt discouraged when, after four years, a reforming pope, Paul IV, dismissed him with two other married men. In place of his salary as singer, the pope awarded him a pension of six scudi, less than six dollars, a month. With a wife and family, such a reduction of income seemed nothing less than ruin to Palestrina, and stricken with nervous fever, he took to his bed. A little more courage, however, might have served him better, for his dismissal did not spell ruin. In two months he was invited to fill the post of choirmaster at the Lateran, and his fortunes again brightened. He was able to keep his pension, together with the salary accorded him in his new position. After six years he was transferred to the Church of Santa Maria Maggiore, where he remained for ten years, his monthly salary being about $16. In 1571, he was reappointed to his old office of chapelmaster at the Vatican. Palestrina was chapelmaster at the Santa Maria Maggiore at the time of the appointment of the Commission for the Reform of Church Music. The Cardinals Borromeo and Vitellozzi, both active members, recommended that one more trial be made to harmonise religious requirements with the better taste of the people. A story has prevailed for centuries that Palestrina was requested to write a mass which should serve as a model of what the music of the sacred office should be, and that he submitted three works, which were first performed with great care at the house of Cardinal Vitellozzi before a group of clergy and singers. There was an immediate and enthusiastic verdict in favour of the compositions. 
the first two were good and were sufficiently praised but the third the missa papai marcelli as it was afterward called in honour of an earlier pope was felt to be the epitome of all that was noble and dignified in ecclesiastical music the crown and glory of the service itself it was sung in the papal chapel in fifteen sixty five in appreciation of the noble work palestrina was made official composer to the pontifical choir a post created especially for him and succeeding popes confirmed him in his office as long as he lived the story of the commission of cardinals and the musical reforms instituted by the council of trent has been so emphasized by some historians as to represent palestrina as the saviour without whose services church music would virtually have ceased to exist such a view however requires some modification church music was not saved by palestrina in any such sense though its debt to him is nevertheless almost inestimable there was never any intention on the part of the cardinals to abolish it altogether from the church but they had long been seeking a form and a style which should be intelligible acceptable both to the devotee and the layman of cultivated musical taste and suitable to the office which it holds in the sacred service ambrose goes so far as to deny that there was any cause for such wholesale purification but in view of the fact cited this is evidently an error that the evil was widespread is proved by the action that provincial synods took in following the example of the council of trent milan and cambrai in fifteen sixty five constance and augsburg in fifteen sixty seven naumur and mechlin in fifteen seventy from the time of Joscan, attempts had been made by one and another of the masters mentioned in this chapter to make a more suitable connection between text and melody to simplify the contrapuntal writing and to put expression into their art to some extent as has been seen they accomplished their purpose Joscan, festa gombert morales rore and especially willet and lasso have all left evidences of their noble endeavour in this direction it was left to palestrina however to achieve a high level of style the excellence of which was reached by the other masters only in isolated instances and to prove to the cardinals that the music of the church could be lifted to its true dignity he differs not in form but in aesthetic principle from his contemporaries but it is precisely that difference which raised palestrina to the pinnacle of fame the outward facts of his later life offer little that need detain the reader among his patrons were popes and princes but they did not on the whole distinguish themselves by kindness or generosity to the musician jealousy among members of the choir with which he was so long connected was a constant source of unpleasantness and his faithful work was meagrely rewarded his largest regular earnings amounted to something like thirty dollars a month and he apparently never dreamed of any revenue from the sale of his works indeed it is unlikely that any very substantial reward ever came to him with his added honours as a composer neither could he have added much to his gains by teaching for in the whole course of his life he taught but seven private pupils three of whom were his own sons continuous poverty was accompanied by domestic griefs of the deepest kind three sons all giving promise of inheriting the father's intellect and genius died one after another the wife with whom he was especially happy died in fifteen eighty and the one remaining son became a profligate and worthless spendthrift 
It may be added that not long after the death of his first wife he married a wealthy widow, and so was well provided for till the end of his life. One event in the master's life stands out in contrast to the general sadness. In 1575, the year of Jubilee, fifteen hundred singers belonging to two confraternities of his native town made a pilgrimage to Rome, and utilised the occasion to do him honour. Dividing themselves into three choruses, with priests, laymen, boys and women among their number, and with Palestrina himself at their head, they entered Rome in a solemn and ceremonial procession, singing the music of their great townsmen. This was perhaps the only public honour Palestrina received during his lifetime. Among the friends of his later life were St. Filippo Neri, his confessor, a favourite pupil named Giudetti, Ippolito d'Este, and Giacomo Buoncompagni, a nephew of Pope Gregory Thirteenth. The activity of his early years continued almost to the very end. The record of the second half of his life is but a long catalogue of his publications. Whole collections of magnificent works were dedicated to popes, cardinals or princes, some of whom returned the honour with scant courtesy. The last of these was a collection of thirty Magdegali Spirituali for five voices, in honour of the Virgin, dedicated to the Grand Duchess of Tuscany, wife of Ferdinand de Medici. Baini and Dr. Burney are full of praises for these last productions. While he was eagerly at work on another volume, seven masses to be dedicated to Pope Clement VII, he was taken ill and died, February 2nd, 1594, comforted and cared for to the end, not by his mean and worthless son, but by his saintly friend, Filippo Neri. By order of the Curia, he was buried with all the honour of a cardinal or prince in the Basilica of the Vatican, while the citizens of Rome, high and low, followed him in sorrow to his grave. The immense number of Palestrina's works is astonishing even in that age of prodigious workers. The list appended to a prospectus of a proposed selected edition of his works mentions 93 masses, 119 motets, 45 hymns, 68 offertories, three volumes of Lamentations, of Litanies, three books, of Magnificats, two books, of Madrigals, four books, all of which are but a portion of his labours. The Mass for Holy Thursday, Fratres Ego Enim Acepi, the Mass for the Assumption of the Virgin, Assumpta Est Maria in Celum, the Motet, Surge Illuminare Jerusalem, and the Stabat Mater for two choirs are still in use in the papal chapel. The Improperia, reproaches of the Lord to an ungrateful people, performed for the first time in 1560, immediately obtained a great renown, and were added at once by Pope Pius IV to the collection of the Apostolic Chapel. This work has also been repeated in the Sistine Chapel yearly on Good Friday up to the present time. Its performance made a profound impression upon both Goethe and Mendelssohn. The latter thus describes the singing of the pontifical choristers in the rendition of this work. They understood how to bring out and place each delicate trait in the most favourable light, without giving it due prominence, one chord gently melted into another. The ceremony at the same time is solemn and imposing. Deep silence prevails in the chapel, only broken by the re-echoing holy, sung by unvarying sweetness and expression. 
the Missa Papai Marcelli, which proved so important an instrument in the history of church music, is written for six voices, soprano, alto, two tenors and two basses. Immediately upon its production, its popularity became very great. Cardinals quoted poetry in its praise. The Pope commanded that a special performance be given in the Apostolic Chapel, and that it be transcribed into the chapel collection in unusually large characters. Baini compares its grandeur to that of 33rd Canto of the Inferno. Curious legends as to its origin sprang up, and unauthorised arrangements went through several editions. A poor adaptation for four voices was made by Enerio, and others for eight and twelve voices by other followers of the Roman school. It is perhaps the best-known example of the celebrated Palestrina style. In a classification of Palestrina's work, the German writer Hauptmann distinguishes three styles corresponding generally to the master's very early, adolescent and mature years. The first shows markedly the influence of his Netherland predecessors and teachers. The melodies move along independently without melting into chords, and the predominating character is fugal and canonic. In this phase of his work, he was still influenced by the evil fashion of the period, which for the most part subordinated the true meaning of the music to the display of contrapuntal science. This quality is shown occasionally also in later compositions, as, for example, in the mass with the well-worn L'Homme Armé theme, wherein he boldly met the Flemish composers on their own ground, and proved that he could write as learned counterpoint as they. In these examples, he seems intentionally to have adopted the florid style of his predecessors, overlaying the theme with erudite contrapuntal figures, and rendering it elaborate and difficult. The Mass, Assumpta Est Maria, may be said to illustrate the second style, which is in marked contrast to his preceding work. The music is much less elaborate, the voices proceeding for the most part simultaneously in smoothly flowing phrases. The third, that known as the Palestrina style, illustrated so famously by the Pope Marcellus Mass, is a combination of all that was best in the Netherland and Italian schools. It is a vocal style in simple counterpoint, mostly note against note, with only a moderate use of imitation, and an avoidance of chromatics, violent contrasts, and everything approaching the dramatic. At first he followed the custom of using secular tunes for sacred works, but in his best period he almost invariably employed the ancient plainsong melodies in connection with the proper sacred text. Many of his canti fermi are placed in the soprano instead of the tenor voice. Strict attention is shown to syllabic declamation and to a simple, singable arrangement of the voice parts, which is frequently based upon a succession of pure triads. The harmony is gentle and serene, and the devices for obtaining contrast and tone colour are conspicuous by their absence, while the whole is imbued with sincerity, devotion and a great sense of beauty. Thibault, a Frenchman, says of him, He is so completely master of the ancient ecclesiastical modes and of the treatment of the simple triad that repose and enjoyment are to be found in his works in a greater degree than in those of any other master. Contrasts and similarities between the lives of Di Lasso and Palestrina suggest themselves at once. The one a northerner, aristocratic, famous, successful, rich, welcomed in the most courtly and cultured circles of Europe, encouraged and richly rewarded in all his endeavours. The other, a southerner, 
poor, burdened with sorrows and difficulties throughout his life, pursuing his calling without regard to favour or disfavour. Yet they were alike in their prodigious activity, in their lovable and gentle natures, and in their devotion to the Catholic Mother Church. Both were rich in genius, the northerner more emotional, more sensuous in harmony, more dramatic, the southerner more calm and serene in the beauty of his work. Palestrina seems to have stood apart, untouched both by the swarming intellectual novelties of the time and by the revolutionary spirit within the church. Great of intellect indeed he must have been, for he conquered a vast field of learning and reached a point where his art was objective, universal and perfect according to its type. With the death of Palestrina, the first great period of what we may call modern music, in distinction from the music of the ancients, which was purely melodic, came practically to perfection, which was an end. A few distinguished composers carried on for a while the traditions of the vocal polyphonic style, now perfect, chief among whom were Giovanni Nannino, died 1607, Thomas Luis de Vittoria, died circa 1613, Felice Anerio, died 1614, and Giovanni Anerio, died circa 1620, possibly the brother of Felice. But new and powerful influences were at work to turn men's minds from this perfection, and rapidly so to modify the style itself that the characteristics and the spirit of it vanished. It had grown up within the church. It was apt only to the expression of exalted religious rapture, and even before the century which brought about its flawless perfection, the more passionate spirit of man was seeking to express itself. Such a spirit brought colour and fire and dramatic vigour to music, even to music of the church such as we have seen in Venice, and such emotional force the exquisitely adjusted mechanism of polyphony was in no way suited to express. We must remember that it was essentially religious music, and that pronounced rhythm and sharp dissonances were consciously avoided. Furthermore, that at its best it was to be sung without accompaniment, and that a conjunct, smooth movement of the voice parts was necessary, since singers in choir without accompaniment cannot be sure to sing wide or unnatural intervals exactly. Since rhythm, dissonance, and sudden leaps or turns in melody are the chief means whereby music can express emotional agitation, the Palestrina style was not even remotely suitable to the new and active spirit spread abroad through the influence of the Italian Renaissance, which had discovered new worlds, new arts, new sciences, new life. The delicate and infinitely complicated structure could not but be rent and distorted. Luther with his chorales, the English with their new service and the coming of the Elizabethan age, even Willert in Catholic rich Venice, with his two organs and his double choirs, had forecast the end of the Palestrina style. Several features of this marvellous style were destined to disappear simply with the natural growth of music. In the first place, the polyphonic ideal in its highest strictest sense, the submersion of many melodies in a river of sound in which no melody is evident, the complete suppression of individual personal utterance, was a medieval and essentially intellectual ideal. It could not long maintain its hold against the inborn natural desire of the individual to sing out his own personal feelings, for it meant the suppression of melody, an unnatural restraint. In the second place, 
from the time when two melodies were first joined the knowledge and appreciation of harmony were bound to grow that is the knowledge of the effect of dissonances and consonances following each other and it needed but a matter of time for men to come to plan music with the end of producing such effects in a definite sequence now in polyphony the consideration of the progression of chords was entirely secondary to the ideal of writing several independent voice parts of course the influence of the church mose was strong in delaying the development of the harmonic bases of music they were iron bands about harmony and they quite fettered modulation for it was forbidden to pass in the course of a piece from one mode to another but here against the palestrina style is related to the scholasticism of the middle ages the ecclesiastical modes were in general closely connected with the philosophy of aesthetics on the one hand and with mathematics on the other and all the popular music which has been preserved in the middle ages shows an unmistakable and deeply significant choice of those modes only which resemble our own major and minor in the suppression of individual emotion in the banishment of rhythm and other active startling elements of music in order to produce the effect of vagueness and mystery in the limitation of music to ecclesiastical modes the palestrina style is the flower of the spirit of the middle ages of a spirit that in the lifetime of palestrina himself was already dissipating in thin air he stands looking backward upon the centuries which had given him birth while on every hand the activities of man were urging impetuously forward to the new aims therefore we must now turn our attention end of section twenty